and welcome to Inspired by EWB, our fortnightly podcast and video series where we talk to interesting people and share our learnings. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Scott Daniel, Senior Lecturer in Humanitarian Engineering at UTS. Hi, Scott. Hey, Hugo. Thanks for the kind words of welcome. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll live up to it in the next 20 minutes or so. I'm sure you will. <laughs> Across your career, you've had plenty of public speaking experience through lecturing now and your previous experience on a radio series. What do you think have been your most important learnings and skills that you've used through public speaking? Thanks. Thanks. Cool question, Hugo. I think um, I was, you know, pondering that and reflecting on my experiences. And I think the one thing that's sometimes hard to remember, or, or maybe like it escapes, escapes your mind, but that everybody watching or everyone in the audience almost always wants you to do a really good job and is on your side and, and will like forgive slip ups and is there because they're interested in what you have to say. And I think like when I can try and um, remember that it, it makes everything else a little bit easier. Sometimes I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to kind of be like um, pitch, pitch perfect and, um, and, when, when people are on side, you can just relax. And it's actually something I do with my students when we're in face-to-face -face sessions, at least, is just try to encourage them to be the audience that they, that they would want to have. You know, if you, if you look out and you see 50 stone-faced people kind of like looking back at you very sternly, it's hard to, um, it's hard to push through that. So I, I, I ask them to be like smiling and encouraging, like, like it's your best friend that's presenting and you're wanting them to do a great job. And, and even when people aren't giving that feedback, I think often audiences are there because they're interested and they do want to hear what you have to say and they, and they want you to do a good job. So I think it's maybe less a technique and just more like kind of like um, an approach to like just um, be a bit more calm and collected and, and know that everyone's on side as, as, as they you know, most always are. That makes perfect sense. I've been mainly teaching in small groups and so it's a little bit easier. Um, other than that technique of trying to ask the audience to understand um, from your point of view and engage as a friend, um, how else do you reckon you boost engagement in those early morning lectures when everyone's still sleepy and tired? <laughs> I think like um, um, being like being human about it, like being approachable, being, being down to earth. Like I make dorky jokes at my own expense and, um, and try to cultivate a, um, a, an atmosphere of kind of openness and, and being vulnerable. And like, you know, I'll do that clumsily by, you know, making fun of myself or, or recognizing that it's hard to, um, you know, be at an 8am event or something. And um, I think just, just trying to make it more conversational rather than um, rather than kind of platformed, you know, just make it as um, as convivial, as down to earth, as conversational as possible. Um, and not being and, and 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 therefore like kind of not not being pretentious and being kind of platformed, but just trying to be more um, more approachable. And I think there's like in, you know, it gets harder and harder in bigger and bigger groups, but there's some little things that you can do that can that can help convey that subtext like when I used to have groups of up to well, I think the biggest I've done it with is a group of about 60 but I sat us all in big chairs in a circle and they're still there primarily like like I was leading the discussion I was the one doing most of the talking but yet there's a subtlety imbued in the layout which conveys that everyone is participating and everyone has a right to speak and be heard 
and you don't even have to state that explicitly. It's built into just how the interaction is set up. And so um, I guess tr like that, that's not always possible, but that would be kind of the approach that I take is trying to make it um, as, um, as uh, inclusive as possible. And, and you can kind of operationalize that in some ways. And, um, and, and little tiny things that you can do about interacting with people in those like in between moments that can help um, uh, cultivate a warmer atmosphere. It's not always easy. And I'm, you know, I've struggled um, on, online to, to replicate some of those like small subtle techniques. Um, but that, that would be the goal that I'd have is to um, that twofold, you know, re remembering that people are there because they're interested and they want you to do a good job and, and trying to cultivate like a, um, a uh, warm and kind of like level and um, inclusive um, atmosphere to the interaction. Humor sounds like a great technique and I can really see how that two-way communication really would boost engagement. And I also love how you mentioned that you bring everyone into a circle. Like I found that on some long training days on the weekend for volunteering events, like I've had to try that exact technique and it really helps and gets everyone more engaged and it's amazing how the environment does that. Like, and, and, you know, can contrast that with, you know, someone standing up behind a podium where they're blocked behind something and people are in, are in tiered seating where they've, even though you, everyone's in the same room, that kind of spacing can, can limit, can kind of just set the tone of set the expectation of, oh, I'm just here for this guy's going to talk or inclusion where everyone's got an equal voice. So I think some of those subtle, um, ways of kind of physically expressing what you're hoping for intellectually, you know, you're hoping for an intellectual exchange of ideas and you can cultivate that by setting the tone with some of those subtextual clues and yeah, how to do that online. I'm still figuring out, but, um, but I, I, I love, um, like I used to um, in the last few years have been involved in a number of design summits and that's what have been a really like um, a really fascinating experience each time in different ways to share that with students and, um, and uh, lots of opportunities to have really um, warm and open and vulnerable conversations where you can interact with students as a human being and not pretend that, not pretend that you're not. Yeah, Pritch really, really does make all that difference. To my knowledge, you're actually our first radio host or radio um, representative <laughs> on the series. How did you actually get into radio and what were some of the most interesting questions you asked in your time on radio? So, so I did, um, so years and years ago, I used to teach high schools, maths and science. And um, stepping out of that, I got into doing science communication with Questacon, which is the science center in Canberra. And so we traveled around um, uh, for a year and a bit, traveled around lots of kind of rural and remote Australia. And through that, got my first taste of radio and did like school of the air in Kalgoorlie um, with some students in remote um, outstations and, um, did some ABC uh, spots as well, um, promoting some of the work that we were, you know, some of the um, science outreach that we were doing. And then um, a few opportunities um, led to having a, a kind of semi-regular spot on, AB, on um, local ABC. And I would, um, it was a mix of doing little science demos that, you know, that you can do with, with household um, things that you could find, you know, around the house. Um, as well as answering questions from from listeners and one of the um, I think two two I did it for a few years so over that time got quite a few questions but two two stood out one was a um, 
a handwritten letter. This is only a few years ago, but it was a handwritten letter written in this beautiful scraggly script that a, a, uh, an elderly um, lady had written in, wondering why, and she's kind of like wrote this, you know, full page letter, wondering why when she saw a plane go in the sky, she could see the plane over there, but the sound, it sounded like it was coming over there, you know, because of the different um, uh, speeds with which um, light and sound waves travel. But it was kind of beautiful to see how um, she still was curious enough about something that she was puzzled by to, 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 to try to understand it. And, and that kind of relates to the other question that, that really stood out as, um, as one that gave me a lot of pause and one I still ponder from time to time, but it was from a, a teenager in Gippsland in, in Eastern Victoria who wrote in a question about what makes us human. And um, I found that fascinating because, um, because it's one that has fascinated you know, humanity for millennia, like for one, but also, you know, how, how can we approach that question? And um, the angle that I took was that there are some, in the past, there have been some hallmarks of what distinguishes humanity. You know, for example, um, tool use was initially, you know, postulated as being a distinguishing feature of, of homo sapiens um, or language. And yet we've seen that um, there is tool use in other animals. You know, there's the, um, there's a story of Jane Goodall watching chimpanzees like dip little sticks down termites nest and pull out with a little like lollipop of termites. Um, and you know, there's, there's other examples from other animals. Uh, there's um, some form of communication, I believe with like a reading about dolphins that they have individualized like calls for different animals, which is kind of, which I kind of perhaps anthropomorphizing, but is, I understand is interpreted as like different names for different animals. And um, there's, you know, self-awareness of being able to recognize oneself in a mirror and some other animals, like from all we can deduce, seem to be able to recognize themselves in mirrors. And so you can have all this scientific evidence to explore these different ideas about what, what you know, distinguishes us. Um, but the, the conclusion I came to, at least in that story, is that we wonder, that we are curious. And um, I guess that was the link that with the with the letter that I received and that curiosity about something. Um, and that, that was a really fun, fun question to think about and, and explore. And so it was probably my favorite from, from the few years. Yeah, actually I haven't, um, I stopped doing it a couple of years ago because I was, um, you're going to re-inspire me to get back into it because I really enjoyed doing it. But um, as you know, I'm sure with doing your podcast, it takes a bit of preparation time and um, recording time and so on and editing time. So, um, I let it slide, but you're going you're gonna to get me going again and, and get out there and do it because it it's a really fun way to engage with people. Hopefully, and it's the perfect time to do it because everyone's more engaged online. <laughs> I've listened to more podcasts and watched more TV than I care to mention in the last 12 or you know, eight months or whatever it is. So yeah, maybe the, the time is right. <laughs> what makes us human literally sounds like an impossible question because as you said, people have literally been trying to solve that for thousands and thousands of years. So. Yeah, so it's and and kind of like it's for me it's it's a it's a double whammy because wrapped up in our pursuit of kind of the intangible um, that that question represents is is to me kind of what what does make us human that we that we do have that curiosity, um, but yeah perhaps perhaps when this gets posted online we can get people's comments in the you know on the video or whatever to see what other what other reasons people have. <laughs> That's a great idea. So if anyone's seeing the video, feel free to post a question underneath or an idea. 
Also, for our non-engineering guests, would you be able to quickly explain why the sound of an airplane sounds like it's coming from somewhere else rather than... Ah, yeah, very good, very good. So we see, um, so planes travel at a sizable fraction of the speed of sound. The speed of sound in air is, um, well, I think it's what, about 300 meters a second? And so um, because light travels O over the over the distance scales that we're dealing with on our planet, light light travels effectively instantaneously because it's so quick, and so the sound will still be coming from where the plane was a few seconds ago. But the plane is traveling so fast that it's already over here before the sound reaches us. So there's kind of like it's kind of like um, actually it's exactly like the wake of a boat. If you saw a boat go by, you'd see the boat like go by over there but then the wake from it would only reach the shore a few seconds later. And that wake is like the sound waves reaching you, but you, while you're still seeing the light waves coming from it, you know, go, gone down river. So it's, it's analogous to the, um, it's quite similar to the wake of a boat being behind, catching up to you later than, 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 than the boat has. That was off the cuff, I hadn't prepared, so I hope that was... <laughs> it was very good, don't worry. And it also makes me kind of jealous because all the planes flying over my house are really low flying, so it means they're <laughs> a, lot, a lot louder. Yes, that Sydney flight path, yeah. <laughs> um, also, in the past, you spent some time working with UNESCO. Um, yeah, uh, so, sure, so that, that was a, um, that was, so my PhD was in, um, so I'll take a little back step and give a little context. So my background after working as a high school teacher was, was working in teacher training in, um, in Australia initially, and then uh, abroad, I spent a couple of years in, in Vanuatu working with teachers there, and then a couple of years in, or a year and a half in Namibia. And I wanted to um, continue in some way in that kind of overlap of, of uh, international development, the STEM you know, background that I had and, and, um, and education. And I found out about a program that UNESCO, uh, that, that's uh, supported by UNESCO, that's about, um, it's called Active Learning in Optics and Photonics. So it's, it's you know, one narrow branch of, of, uh, of physics and engineering. And, but in that program, um, the facilitators in that program would travel to um, different countries around the world and try to share kind of uh, research-based teaching approaches with local um, high school teachers and local lecturers. And the, um, one of the leaders of that program is Alex Mazzolini and he, and having found out about that, I ended up doing my PhD with him and, uh, and then with him did some work in, um, we spent some time in Mauritius, which is, you know, beautiful, beautiful country in um, Southern Indian Ocean and uh, worked with, um, spent some time working with teachers there, um, looking at, uh, yeah, trying to, trying to move beyond that, you know, the traditional approaches, which are, still all too common in, um, in, in teaching of that, you know, sage on the stage, just kind of chalk and talk. And although it's very common, there's a lot of research evidence that it doesn't actually engage students very well in understanding the concepts. And so this program was about trying to um, take the, the best research about, about interactive um, teaching and learning techniques and, and um, sharing them with, with, uh, with interested teachers in, in, in different countries around the world to, um, to develop their uh, teaching skills and, and hopefully ultimately the learning outcomes of the students. And so um, that program was in Mauritius, but then since then, um, like it's, it's, uh, it's taken, the, the, I just could have came in or it was already quite well established and, and just was involved for a short time, but it's been going for, 
something like 10 years now. And, and um, my supervisor, Alex, is still, well, at least pre-COVID, was still traveling around the world delivering these programs. So it's a really um, impressive uh, um, like accomplishment to think of how many teachers. And then you have such a strong multiplying effect when you work with teachers because then they share what, what they've learned with um, with their, you know, hundreds of hundreds of students and year by year. So I think that's a really powerful way to um, to try to uh, have have a positive impact on the world is working working with teachers. That sounds like it would make such a profound difference and reminds me of my year five assignment on Mauritius. So I have to ask, <laughs> what was it like there? <laughs> Mauritius is, is beautiful and um, it's Yes, well, there's there's lots of interesting things about it. I mean, the first of all, the dodo is from there, and so um, they still that still features heavily in a lot of the iconography of uh, of Mauritius. Um, it's it's another thing that's interesting about it is that it's it's actually Mauritius is the name of the particular island. There's Ile Maurice, like they speak French there, and um, but just how you have the Hawaiian Islands, how you have uh, a, a volcanic hotspot in the, of um, an upwelling of magma, and then as the Earth's as the crusts move over the hotspot, you get like um, a, a chain of volcanic islands that that are increasingly older as as the old as the original ones move further away from the hotspot, and new ones come up under where the hotspot is now. And you can see the same kind of trajectory in in what's called the Mascarenes, if I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But Mauritius, there's the island of Mauritius, there's another island called Rodrigues, and there's another island called um, Reunion Island, and they're the same pattern of Hawaii of the hotspot has occurred where I visited all three of the islands and one and they they both differ in that you can see the difference in the topography where the the youngest island Reunion has, act, has an active volcano, active as in you know lava lakes and, and danger of explosion, and very cataclysmic geography with very dramatic um, uh, calderas and uh, like striking striking landscapes and and very um, and very high because it hasn't had time to erode yet and then as you go to Mauritius there's kind of like um, eroded volcanism and then to Rodrigues it's eroded even further and so like it's interesting um, it's interesting geologically it's also interesting culturally because it's got French influence um, it's very similar um, geographically to Vanuatu in terms of being tropical in the southern hemisphere and so on. So it's interesting to see some of the parallels um, with how similar problems of, of daily life have been addressed under similar constraints, but by different cultures. So that, so that was interesting for me in a way that I can't quite articulate very well, but there were similar like um, housing. Uh, there was, you know, tr traditional housing was very similar. Um, it's also interesting, like, Historically, because Matthew Flinders, you know, who, who traveled around Australia, also was traveling around the world. And so he was, I believe, imprisoned on the southern end of Mauritius when it was a French colony and the Brits were at odds with the French at that time. So it's, it's a, um, a really interesting place. And it actually shows up on Chromecast when you know, I have those, those photos that show up on Chromecast that yeah. rotate through. One, one of the photos is there from Mauritius. Every time it comes up, I get excited because it's... Um, it's, it's such a striking landscape that they've used some photos from there on the uh, Google um, screen, screen show. I so never, oh. You should visit, you should visit. I really should. I never expected to be learning geography today, but I'm glad we took that time. It sounds <laughs> truly beautiful. It's, it's a really special place. It's really nice. Unfortunately, that's all the time we've got for today, but thank you so much for joining us. You've been such an amazing guest.
Oh, this has been really fun. We didn't even get to talk about Engineers Without Borders <laughs> and the work I'm doing at UTS. So um, we'll have, maybe we can save that for another one. But um, yeah, loving what you're doing with um, pr promoting Engineers Without Borders and promoting people working in the space. So um, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Now we'll have to hand over to Ning and Muskin who will continue the episode. Hi guys, welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, today we'll talk about off-grid power systems. Electricity for the most people that are listening to this podcast is easily accessible and reliable. However, access to reliable electricity is one of the most significant problems to remote and rural communities. Approximately 940 million people do not have access to an electrical grid line, and that is where off-grid power systems becomes important. I'll let Muskin continue. So what is it? An off-grid power system is not connected to the electrical grid. The electrical grid is the network that transmits electricity produced in power stations to us. Why an off-grid power system? A successful off-grid power system is important because it is more cost-effective than connecting remote and rural locations to an electricity grid. It is also more affordable because electricity does not need to be transported and it does not rely on the consumption of fossil fuels. Power outages caused by extreme weather, such as storms, can be avoided by remote and rural communities because off-grid power systems store energy and thus can reliably provide power. The use of renewable energy sources makes it sustainable and reduces the carbon footprint because it decreases the demand to burn fossil fuels for electricity production. Oh, that is very sustainable, I would say. Yeah. A recent example of a community switching to off-grid power systems is the Colville Lake Settlement, which is a community located in Canada and is approximately 50 kilometers away from the Arctic Circle. The community with a population of about 160 people decided to install a hybrid technology that combines solar energy, diesel, and a battery system to replace the use of an unreliable diesel power plant. Diesel was expensive and the remoteness of the community created transportation issues. The power generator was also recorded to have 60 power outages in the year before replacement. Oh. That's interesting to see that we have like um, proper real life usages for this stuff. I know, right, exactly. And to think that they can use solar, solar energy in an area that's only 50 kilometers away from the Arctic Circle, like you would imagine how cold and dark it would be. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, because a lot of stuff will function quite differently in cold temperatures. Yeah. And like, isn't it like only, I think six months of daylight. So it's really important to have. Oh, right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Do they have like um, all day long daylight in half of the year or something? Yeah, I think it's 24 hours of daylight for six months. Oh, wow, that's in, yeah, that's really good for solar power. That's the solar panels harvesting season. <laughs> so the project began in 2013 by Northwest Territories Power Corporation. 
During the development process, they decided on a battery system with 232 kilowatts per hour of energy that was provided by SAF. The four, the four battery modules are protected by the extremely cold climate by a container designed by SAF. It can withstand temperatures as low as negative 50 degrees Celsius. The 81 kilowatt solar photovoltaic system was developed by another company called Green Sun Rising. It has 546 solar panels and 330 of these solar panels can put on permafrost. Wow, that's impressive. And so for the viewers who can see the screen, you can see how like the solar panels are like surrounded by snow and ice, but like the solar panels can still put on top of the permafrost. Mm. And then going back to the 24 hour daylights in the summer months, the lithium ion batteries are charged during this time so that the solar and diesel generators can be switched off. This has caused diesel consumption to decrease by 40% in the community. Wow, that's really impressive. I know, right? Like to imagine like how they were relying solely on diesel and to go from yeah. that to like solar energy. Mm. That is really good. 40% is a lot, almost half. Yeah. And if like, if they keep building on this and they could reduce it by even more. Yeah, definitely. Reducing our demand of fossil fuels. Mm. While researching, I also came across this project called the Off-Grid Box. It's like this tiny compact box that's 1.8 by 1.8 by 1.8 meters, developed by an Italian company. It's supposed to generate power using solar panels and provide access to clean drinking water. However, it has an expensive cost to set up, which makes it difficult for large-scale produce and greater availability to communities. I see. This looks more like an um, individual kind of project. Yeah. A much smaller scale than the other ones. Yeah, I think this is really good, like that people are using off-grid systems. Like the example before, like how they reduce their diesel fuel usage. I think that's going to be really good for the environment, like in the long term. Yeah, exactly. Uh, reducing our overall use of fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really good. Plus that, um, the remote communities, if they get access to electricity, they can be more connected to everyone else. And I think that is good as well. Yeah, being able to use appliances that frees up time for other stuff that they can do. Yeah, for sure, because appliances nowadays are all around electricity. And then if they want to use like um, computers and stuff to connect to people, yeah, that needs electricity as well. So it's very important. That would like. also like create job opportunities if they could access electricity and then the internet. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think that's important as well. So that's it for today. Thank you guys for joining. 
Before we finish, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which we are based, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. So thank you guys again for joining us. I hope to see you guys again next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks. Bye.